Welcome to a Longer Table podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. Friends, today I have one of my friends, Diana, on the podcast. I'm so excited for you to get to know her because Diana and I met um, when I was still working at the church that I used to work at. And she was in a role and I was in a role that somehow collided. I don't even remember exactly how, but we became fast friends and have stayed in touch over the years. And little did I know she would end up writing a book, which we're going to talk about today. Um, Her book is called Waging Peace, One Soldier's Story of Putting Love First. So Diana, welcome to a Longer Table podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. It's fun. It's like we get to hang out again in person after two years. Um, I want to start at the top of your story with what led you, um, not just because you're a woman, but just in general, what led you to become a combat medic in the Army National Guard? One thing that I think is really I really believe in culture that a lot of times we don't realize that we actually were raised in a culture. Um, And so I, I realized I was raised in a rural culture um, in Northern Minnesota. And so in a lot of rural towns, there's not a lot of economic opportunities. And so joining the military is a bit of a generational um, step after high school. And so in my family, I was the third generation (laughs) army veteran. And I think I knew people who went into the military to get a skill and kind of get a step up and out of their town. Um, I knew people during the military. I didn't know people who went to college and granted this was a while ago before the World Wide web, but I joined because I wanted to go to college and my family had love and affection, but not the money for that. And I was like, Oh, well, this is how people in my culture who I know this is how they did it. So I joined the Army National Guard and I wanted to be a um, medical missionary in Africa. So somehow these two things like pointed, I don't know, like someone should have said something to me. But I joined because I really wanted to go to college. And that was for my culture. That's really what I most knew how to achieve my goals. Yeah. So what exactly, for those of us who don't know, AKA me, maybe some of my listeners too, what's a combat medic? What, what is it? And what did you do? Yeah. So a combat, so this is, let's just be kind and say 20 years ago. So women were not broadly allowed to be in the military. So when my mom joined the military, she was not allowed to be in the army. It was called the women's army corps. And it was like separate, but kind of. So by the time I joined, women were allowed to serve in the military, but not in combat roles. So there was oftentimes like two jobs open, maybe. And one was a medic. And then I think maybe it was like cook or I don't know. There's a few things. So I didn't have a lot of options, but a combat medic is basically a paramedic grade um, health professional. So it's kind of like picture a paramedic. And a combat medic is one who has a, um, I work in the field, so I have a backpack and whoever has the most dangerous mission gets the medic to go with them. So I, my job was to keep someone alive for the golden 10 minutes of trauma to stop the bleeding and keep them alive and get the IV in and then call in a helicopter or a medevac. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. I want to 
we're going to like kind of be all over the place here, but I feel like these, we need to cover these two things to set a foundation for where we're going. So we've talked briefly about your choice to be a combat medic in the army national guard and what it is. Now I want to kind of go back to your childhood. Were you, did you grow up in a Christian household? You mentioned wanting to be a missionary in Africa. Like how have you been a Christ follower your whole life? Tell me a little bit about that. It's such a great question when you turn 40, because you're like, wow, it's not what I thought it was. So I grew up in a Christian, small, little Baptist church, Christian family. But as, I, as I've gone, I'm like, wow, I think I was born into a culture of you know, American Christianity, but it was oftentimes just what we thought, you know, like how we baptized was how only the true people baptized. If people didn't mirror our patriotism, then they weren't true patriots. Like it basically, I look now and I'm like, oh, that's a little fundamentalism, right? If like your denomination is like the one true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I grew up with that being the backdrop of my childhood, of my family life was that um, I was in a way I feel like always felt like I was a Christian or maybe God was on my team. Okay. Whoever my team was, God was on our team. Hmm. That's interesting. I like how often you bring up the word culture and you help people acknowledge that they did in fact grow up in a type of culture. Um, cause sometimes we look at other people or other countries or other religions and other ways of living and we can identify that culture, but we don't recognize that we ourselves have our own culture. Um, and, and this all ties together. So let's, let's keep going. I want to get to this point where you were serving in Iraq. Okay. So I read your book. I endorsed your book. It's amazing. Everyone should read it. And we're going to talk more about it, but you had this pivotal moment that changed your life. And I want you to tell um, everyone listening what that moment was and how this uh, idea or this, how you as a follower of Jesus who had these convictions about your faith, kind of how that collided, maybe clashed with your service in the military. Yeah, clash is a very nice way of putting it, man. I, I appreciate that. You, know, you, you never know when you're going to have those like, your life goes up into a fireball in front of your face moments. Like they do catch by surprise. So I had been called up to be part of the preemptive strike. So this is right when um, we didn't declare war, but the U.S. was pushing like 100,000 soldiers over into Iraq, like as fast as they could. And I was part of that preemptive strike. So it was just a week or two after we had gotten there and we were in a meeting because we were going to a convoy, which is where you drive your trucks in a group. Um, we were going to convoy into enemy territory the next day. And so we're getting our safety briefing of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And we train like we fight. So it was like absolutely normal. You know what I mean? You're hearing it. You're like, yep. And then at the very end, the sergeant says, it's an enemy tactic for the enemy to push little Iraqi children in front of American trucks in order to stop the convoy. And then they ambush the soldiers at the rear of, this, rear mm -hmm. of the convoy. He's like, I hope you understand your duty to keep the convoy rolling at all costs tomorrow. <gasps> if you cannot do your duty, if you cannot keep the convoy rolling to keep your battle buddies safe, stand up now and identify yourself. Mm. Um, and like my chest just froze. Like I was trying to put together what he was saying. Yeah. And like he's essentially saying you may have to kill an Iraqi child who they're going to use 
as a, as a, as a means of stopping or tricking or however you want to put it, you guys, and your job is stop at nothing. Right. And all of a sudden, like I'm hearing the words and they're like suspending in the air for me. Cause I'm like, what? And before I had decided like, what am I going to do? Am I going to stand up and say like, I'm not going to do this or what? He just said dismissed. And then all of a sudden, like the room just broke and people poured out of the tent. And I remember walking back under the desert night sky, just thinking like, God, like help me. And, and I really just laid in my little cot at night. And I remember feeling like I had my, uh, this PT t-shirt on and it has army across the front. And I remember just laying in my bed, just like crying and praying and saying like, Oh God, Oh God, help me. Mm -hmm. Um, knowing that from my faith culture and my family culture that I grew up in, I was like, God, like we believe this is, this is okay. Like it's awful, but this is the sacrifice of a soldier. This is, you know, you have to, if you take a life to save a life, ultimately, if it's for your country, then it's okay. And ultimately if it's for your country, it's for God, like awful things. But I remember knowing like, this is what I signed up to do. But like everything in me is screaming that like, this isn't okay. Like this isn't okay. And, um, and I remember just at the, at the pit of like despair where you're like shaking. And I just remember hearing this voice and everybody hears the divine differently, but this is just like the way that I had always really sensed, um, sensed God interrupting my, my life. And I heard these soft voice just say, but I love them, Diana. I love them too. Mm. And just like that, like the tension broke. And I just knew it was true. Everything I learned said that God is love, that God is for life and not death, that if we're kingdom people, then we build life. Right. right. And, and I knew that Jesus even went so far as to say, love your enemies. And so all I knew was that between me and God, God had stepped in front of my righteous beliefs, in front of my allegiances, in front of my theology, and just said, no, I love them. And I couldn't debate it. It was true. I knew God loved my enemy. So I just, I didn't know what was going to happen the next day, but I did know that I would never take a life that God had like asked me to love. And no matter what happened, like that was going to be my highest, like that was the truest true about me. That was my identity that I was going to say yes to God first, even if it cost me everything. Yeah. Wow. And it really was the first time that I had to wrestle between, it was the first time that God was asking me to do something that my country was requiring me to do the opposite. And so I really had to wrestle with these identities where I really thought that, you know, I was a king, I was a citizen of the kingdom first and a, you know, and a citizen of my country second, but really I couldn't share these identities. Mm. Like I had to let one trump the other. And that was just this tension that I'd never experienced in my life. And it was, I mean, hands down the most painful gut wrenching night of my life. And I was all alone wrestling through this thing in the middle of the desert. Yeah. So you end up, let, let's talk about the fact that you do end up finishing your tour of duty. 
but you do so as a peacemaker, which probably made your fellow, what do you call them? Fellow soldiers. Thank you. I'm like, (laughs) is there another word for this? Your fellow soldiers even just think like, what is this lady doing? Like, I don't know. Maybe it did that. Did that lead to even weird tension with them or, or were they, did they admire it as you ended up even because of this peacemaker in you and this knowledge that your allegiance to Jesus had to come first. Um, it led you to this beautiful friendship with this Iraqi family, which was so unlikely. And I'm curious also if you're still in contact with them. So it was one of, so there's a series of things that, um, really led to me becoming a peacemaker in, in middle of spending, uh, over a year, 397 days in combat. But I, and there's a woman, there's an Iraqi grandma who invited me into her home. And now keep in mind, Iraq did not invite American soldiers to come to the country. So from her perspective, like I'm armed, I've got a weapon, I've got all the battle rattle and I am the occupying army and we don't speak the same language. And so for her to invite me into her home, like just made no sense. Like she didn't know if I was going to hurt her. She didn't know if I was trustworthy or not. And inviting me into her home with her grandchildren and her daughters, like that was a risky thing. But the way that she jumped first towards me in love, um, that was, that was the big life changer for me. I was like, I am her enemy and she's inviting me in. And I always say that she was the bravest person on the battlefield because she fought with love instead of hate. And she fought for all of us, for me, and not just her side and not just her kids. And I feel like I never experienced that type, um, that type of self-sacrificing like Jesus love before. Like, you know, we say it, but we don't realize that Jesus, while we are yet still his enemy, gave himself up for us on the cross in love. And the way that this woman did it in such a costly and a war zone just like broke open all my boxes of what was possible. It broke open my boxes of who I've been told to fear, who I've been told is my enemy, who's not right, who's against me. Um, And it just created this connection and this belonging that felt like true freedom. Like I had never been this free before in my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Love and to show up as my like full identity of a citizen of heaven first. Yeah. Are you still in contact with her to this day? And or is there any way that you could stay in touch? No, I, in fact, the last time I saw her, I didn't know it would be the last time that I saw her. I had no idea. I, I had said, you know, we had seen each other and then I got orders to get transferred like a um, hundred miles away and I never got to say goodbye to her. And so that's, um, that's one of the things you'll see in my book, I feel like was one of the most healing things is that I got to write a thank you to her to tell her that because of her love, like my sons are growing up with a fully alive mom mm-hmm. and, and without her loving me like that, I could be bitter and I could be a shell of the person I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being so open. And even in your book, you're so vulnerable and so transparent about everything. And so I'm going to hit you, hit you up with some, some really just maybe what would be considered hard questions here, but you you've since moved on from the military. Briefly tell us what you do for a living now. 
Well, for a living, well, I would say that I'm a peacemaker. That's, that's what God put me on this planet for. And so wherever I show up professionally or personally, like that's just who I am. Um, but I get the privilege of working um, with Preemptive Love Coalition. So I say I'm a peacemaker and I work for Preemptive Love professionally. And for people that don't know, my husband and I are big fans of the work that Preemptive Love does and love to financially support them. Tell, tell people what Preemptive Love does, who they are. So we exist to end war and we think that we can show up before the bombs and bullets stop in Iraq and Syria in all the places that um, that war is happening, we can actually make new stories between communities at odds. And as our world has gone, war has gotten harder and there's been more refugees. So now we're not just in Iraq, uh, now we're in Syria and then Beirut because of the blast and now Mexico because there are immigrants and refugees at that border, the U.S.-Mexico border. And now we know that they're coming from Venezuela. So now we're going upstream to Venezuela. So that's an incredible um Incredible place that I get to be a peacemaker, but I always say my first place and I'm a peacemaker is as a mom, teaching my sons that um, they can use their fists to either break people down or they can choose to build them up. But every single day, they're going to have to make that choice again. It doesn't get me for them. So I feel like as a mom, I get to do that. I get to show up as a peacemaker. Um, I did as a sexual assault nurse and now as an author and as a community person, like um, last night we showed up for our homeless neighbors because they got kicked out of their tents, their tent encampment, and all the shelters are at max because of COVID. And it it's below free, like it's below thirty. We have snow here, and so um, we need people to show up. So I feel like any place I get the chance to show up, it is always believing that peace is possible, that everybody should be at the table, and until everybody has what they need to thrive, like peace isn't here yet. So I'm going to, I'm going to run hard after that piece. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's so cool to see um, how God has taken you from being a soldier to someone who helps prevent war and who, who, whose full-time job is a peacemaker. So I think, I think I know the answer to this, at least the first question, but I have, I have two questions for you. One, are you opposed to war? Like, is there ever a time where we should go to war or do you think it can always be avoided? And again, I know these are like big, big questions, but I'm making them sound more simple than they are. And the other part is how should we as Christians or people who like you and I are trying to follow Jesus, trying to live, um, a radically inclusive, loving, uh, life the way Jesus did. How can we view all of this? Like how, what, what kind of things can we maybe even do to, uh, support loving our enemy? But cause that gets complicated. Cause I also have family and I want to protect that fa- those people. Right. So I'm throwing that out there. Do with it what you will. (laughs) Great. This is a great question. And so I think to the question of war, I think that that is not the question. The question is about violence and our addiction to it. And so I truly believe that in Luke 6, you know, he said, God says, like, you are going to have to give away your life to actually get your life back. And so I think the question again and again is our culture and our self-supremacy that just says, like, I got to put myself first. Our culture says that it's smart. Our culture says that's the goal, um, that we're uh, celebrated if we put ourselves first and get uh, get on top of whatever that that situation is. 
but I think our culture tells us that we cannot live without war, Mm. that the world is scary and, you know, we need it, we need it, we need it. And our history will tell us we done, we've been doing it. Like we cannot not do it. In all of America's history, we've not been in war for like 16 years out of like 250 plus. So I think that our culture tells us we cannot live without it. And I think that Christ says we won't truly start to live until we can go without it. Until we can load it, lay down our right to violence, to putting ourselves first, to taking lives. Like, I don't think that Jesus calls us to lay down the sword because he wants us to be hurt or he wants us to be scared or, or he doesn't understand that this is a violent and scary world. Like he lived in a violent, torturous, scary world. I think he wants life for us and not death. And I think he's asking us to lay down our habit and our addiction to violence because he wants to give us life and more life. And it feels scary. And we don't really have um, ancestors who've done it and we don't have people to look to, but I truly think like that's the direction of life. And so I don't even think we have to decide, is there ever a time? Like we have to start walking in the direction that says, um, you know, when you asked about my my growing up, one of the pivotal things, I am from a little Baptist church, so baptism is like a very big tradition. And so the symbolism, and you normally get baptized like 10, 12. So the symbolism is that you go in the water and you go under the water and all your, all your loyalties and all your allegiances um, are supposed to die and go under the water. When you come up, you're supposed to be a new creation, a citizen of a new place. And I think that until I was in Iraq, until I felt like God saying, um, don't <laughs> give up your right to put your life first, your fellow soldiers first, your country first, your friends and your family first, like until I got asked to put, to give up all my loyalties for the sake of Christ, I don't really know what I was necessarily living out, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I know there's a freedom when we do that. And so I think that if people want to follow Christ, then you will have to follow him into nonviolence. You will have to follow him on self-sacrifice because Jesus never took a life. So you can never take a life for Christ because he never did it. Hmm. Straight up never did. You can take a life for yourself. You can take it for your country. You can have all the reasons that you're going to do it, but you can never say you're doing it for Christ because every time Christ ran into violence, he interrupted it. He stopped it. And sometimes he even unmade it where he put the Peter's ear like back on the soldier that he cut off. And he told him, he's like, this is not my way. Mm-hmm. And so I think if Christians are ever going to follow Jesus, not just talk about Jesus, you are going to have to follow him into nonviolence. And it will, it will hurt. It will be scary. Everybody will call you a fool. But if we're not following Christ into that, then we haven't really switched priorities. We haven't switched citizenship because in heaven there is no violence. And there's this crazy part in Isaiah where it says, like, when the whole earth knows God alive, it says, neither animal nor human will hurt nor kill on my holy mountain. And that sounds crazy because cougars are meant to kill, but our very 
like DNA, our creation will be transformed. And I think we're supposed to be doing that today. So I don't think we have to get stuck on, is there ever a reason for war or not? I think we have to get really seriously stuck on the fact that Jesus never committed an act of violence, that he, he never allowed it. And if Jesus came um, to set the whole world right and all the broken, if he didn't use violence to make the world straight, then I don't know if we can decide we get a pass and we can use a different tool than Christ did. Like, I think we have to use Christ's tools. And I think that that will make an incredible difference in our world today. Yeah. How can you you ever say that you love somebody if you're like reserving the right to kill them? (laughs) You know, kind of have this like, well, you know, if things don't go well, I'm going to pull out that knife or that gun. It's like, I don't know if this is really going to work here. You know, I think it's tough. And I think that violence will tell us um, a lot of what we can't see about ourselves, but it can also tell us where you want to go. So your second question was like, how do we get to show up? Like, how do we live across these lines of differences? And, and I think originally you had said the question was a little bit of like, how do we stand up to love the things that we know we're supposed to be, even if it feels divisive to our friends or our family? So my answer to that is, what did they say about Martin Luther King? They said that he was going too fast, that he was creating violence, um, and he should slow down. And so I look at that and I think, oh my gosh, you know what Martin Luther King did? He ran so hard after like creating the beloved community that other people just like had to see the goodness of that. Like he was building heaven on earth. And I think we don't have to worry about people thinking that we're divisive, but I do think we have to show up with the vulnerable and put our love on the line. Like we have to just start to move our bodies to stand alongside the people who are most vulnerable. And we do so much good that it's so beautiful and so life-giving that we don't have to argue with people. I think we're, I think God puts goodness in us. Like we want to be good, even if we don't know how. Hmm. Yeah. You got to show up with the vulnerable, especially now. And you got to put your body there and it will bring change and it will bring goodness. And that is not divisive. That is, building peace that's waging peace it's doing the work and um and i hope more and more people will feel like they can do this wherever they're at it'll look different but they're needed in their communities to wage peace yeah yeah no it's so true there's so much that you're saying i'm just over here nodding along and so i guess kind of two last rapid fire questions to to sum up uh, our conversation and then i want people to just read your book to take their next steps in um obtaining more knowledge and going deeper with this. But you are constantly uh, dismantling the us versus them mentality, which makes sense based on what I know of your journey and reading your book. But I'm curious, how can we do this in our everyday ordinary lives? How can I dismantle an us versus them mentality? Like from a foster parent perspective, I feel like I already have had to learn how to do this with my kids' parents, right? Instead of viewing the biological parents, it's an us versus them. Uh, Instead of that, I look for focusing on ways that we're similar and how I can be for them, uh, not against them. I'm curious what other tips you have for people in their lives, whatever it looks like, maybe very different than my life or your life. 
How can they dismantle an us versus them mentality? I know that that us versus them mentality is fueled by fear and that fear is a liar and it will rob us every time. Like we cannot serve fear well enough that we can appease it. And so the antidote to that is that we have to show up with proximity. So whoever you see as other, and a lot of people are like, no, no, I don't have any enemies. I'm like, honky. We were all raised to <laughs> see a different group as a little bit like, mm, I don't know about them. Uh, for my grandma, it's Catholics. She got raised hearing that Catholics were other, that like she should be a little suspicious. Um, so I think we all culturally have been told that there's a group that we're not quite sure that they're doing good things in our community. So you have to move your body and fear cannot stand proximity. So show up with those people. Yeah. Lean in. Cause we, it just happens. Like once you get there, I think that God will show you this unshakable goodness that there is a goodness in them. That is the very same goodness in you because that us versus them thrives on us, assuming that we hold all the goodness and rightness and trueness in our hands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then that just means the other person has to be in the bad guy bucket. Like if I'm the good guy, then you just automatically just have to be in the bad guy bucket. Right, right. So you need to pick up your little body. And if you're not sure about Black Lives Matter, I think you should show up. One, read their website, because it's probably not what your friends and family are telling you. Um, to show up and march. Because once we move our bodies, then we are on a new track. Like once we move towards somebody, this humanity and this us versus them just gets shown to be as shallow and superficial an eighth grade lunch table type. Mm-hmm. And you don't even have to do that. You just show up and all of a sudden you feel connected to people and you can see that they have goodness. And it's not about agreement. So I would say show up with the people that you see as other. And you should show up with the vulnerable. I think historically and presently, nothing changes if we don't admit that there are voices and people who have been pushed to the side. Hmm. Once you show up there and you start to just see what you didn't see and know what you didn't know, that will transform a lot of the ways that we have othered people yeah. in our lives. That, that's such a great word. And the last question is really relevant to the holidays, right? So this episode is going to be airing close to Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we're going to be, especially with the election that's going on right now, we're going to be surrounded by friends and family and loved ones who we want to be in relationship with, or we feel like we have to be in relationship with. Uh, but we might not see eye to eye on things. I'm, I'm being specific here and just going to say politically as a peacemaker, because, okay, let's be honest. I'm an Enneagram eight who struggles with peacemaking. Cause I love ruffling feathers and I really like love conflict. So it's not always good. Um, like I enjoy a good debate or a good, like, yeah, just back and forth jabbing a little bit. Um, but how can we all, not just me, but how can we all be peacemakers this holiday season without compromising our values? Like what advice do you have for those situations? I think it's going to be hard. And I think that above all, if we go into these situations thinking that we want to protect ourselves and we want it we want it to be as comfortable as we can, I think we will have missed an opportunity. Like, does everybody want their situations to be as fun and easy as it can? 
For sure. 2020, yes. But this is an opportunity to actually create peace. And so I think that when you're with people who you don't see eye to eye with, one, mentally, imagine a table and them having a chair at it. Like they always have a chair at that table. Like you never get to take it away from them and they don't have to earn it. But um, don't allow them to bring violence with them. So you can always say like, Uncle, Uncle Bob, you always have a place in my life. But when you use words that are dehumanizing and violent, you don't get to talk to me about that. Hmm. Like you don't have to do the old boundary situation, but I truly believe that if you can like hold it in your hand as a little mantra, <laughs> um, I just have, I put this in my book because I've been like leaning on it so darn hard of um, fierce kindness and unshakable goodness. So in one hand, I hold fierce kindness, which means I will speak up when people I disagree with are hurting other people in word or deed. Like I commit to that no matter how scared I am or how uncomfortable it's going to be. Um, fierce kindness means I will, I will tell them that there's a stick in their hand and that's not good for them and it's not good for the people they're bashing. Mm -hmm. And then unshakable goodness in my other hand is I will absolutely hold on to the, that this person has unshakable goodness in them, that it is good and it is their their beating heart is beautiful and um, that is not negotiable and they don't have to do it. Um, so those are the two things that I would challenge you to hold on to, to have that conversation, fierce kindness, truth tells the truth and then unshakable goodness. Cause someone knows if you, if you confront them or however they want to feel about it, if you are holding fierce kindness, like in your body for them, they know it. I know it. When someone approaches me and they have like, they have my good in mind. I can tell and they never have to say a word. Yeah. That changes that embodies this love of Christ that says you have worth and it's invaluable and immeasurable. And I bear witness to it. I see your goodness. And I'm going to ask you to take that stick out of your hand because it's not good for you. That's awesome. I find this to be really encouraging and really helpful, very practical advice. And I would just add one of the thoughts that comes up for me that I try to remind myself of is like, it's not my job to change people's minds and opinions. And, um, it's never my job to quote unquote fix anyone. Um, and so it's like, you know what, we may never get to a place with uncle Bob or whoever, where we see eye to eye on black lives matter or on transgender people and their rights or, you know, whatever it is in the world. But I love that you just said, I can continue to show up with fierce kindness and stand up for those who are being oppressed or attacked or dehumanized while still believing and showing through my body language, through the words that I choose to use that this person who I don't see eye to eye with is um, inherently good because they were created in the image of God. That is really hard to do. It takes a lot of maturity, probably a lot of practice. I'm going to guess it's a muscle that I just have to strengthen over time. Um, and we don't strengthen muscles by just sitting around and not doing anything. So this is a great opportunity. This holiday season is a great opportunity to practice these things, to strengthen those muscles. So thank you so much for um, sharing your story, for writing the book, Waging Peace, for following your convictions and living out, um, these truths and honestly, just all that you do and all that you are and all that you represent, it's so inspiring, but, um, it's also really 
possible for each of us to be a peacemaker in our own communities. And I think your book um, helps us see how we can do that. And so I'll be encouraging everyone to check that out and we'll link it in the show notes. But Diana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been such, uh, just so fun to see your face. So fun to get to cheer you on and just super encouraging. So thank you for having these conversations and I love your questions. They've been so good. Thank you.